Welcome to the Rumination Study. This week, we're catching up. Uh, we have Parsha Naso and Parsha Behalotka. Naso was last week. Behalotka is this week. So we're going to do a double barrel rumination study. So here we go. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Menach HaOlam Asher Kirishanu BeMitzvotah Vetzivanu LaAsok BeDivrei Torah VeHarevna Adonai Eloheinu Et Divrei Torateka BeFinu Ufi Amka Beit Yisrael VeNiye Anachnu VetzEtzeinu VetzEtzei Amka Beit Yisrael Kulanu Yodea Shemeka VeLomde Torateka Vishma Baruch atah Adonai Hamlamet Torah LeAmo Yisrael HaKadosh Baruch Hu, please send Mashiach now. Amen. Right. May we all merit his return. Yes. Let's go. Let's get this exile done. <laughs> well, this first rumination will shed some light on that. <laughs> no pun intended, of course. <laughs> right. If if this one doesn't, then Behalotka will, because the menorah getting kindled. <laughs> oh, what a day! <laughs> right out of the gate. I mean, I've been reading the Orkaim on this, and he has a ton to say about it. Um, but getting right into it, um, the presence of light reveals flaws. The revelation of the Holy One, blessed is he, reveals our unworthiness to receive that revelation. But that's not the purpose for light, nor for the revelation of Hashem. Hundred percent. There is a line of thinking in some theologies, sadly, even among those who call themselves messianic, that goes something like this. The purpose for the law of Moses was to reveal sin and our need for a savior. Now that Jesus has come and the way of salvation is made clear, we no longer need the law of Moses. Instead, we have a new law the law of Christ. Now, obviously, this has problems, first of which it does contradict the Torah. I'm glad you said it. <laughs> Just right out of the gate, right? You know, this is the thinking. It's mainstream thinking. And sadly, it's crept into a lot of messianic circles, unfortunately, especially among... Uh, uh, Hebrew rooters who who don't listen to the rabbis, you know, who don't seem to think that the words of the sages have no bearing. But like it says, the presence of light reveals flaws and people typically don't want their flaws to be revealed. None of us do. None of us feels comfortable being under the microscope, especially the microscope of divine light. Because it reveals all manner of things. 
but it's, it's the point is it's not to make you feel bad but to to get you to realize that we should be living Hashem's way so it's interesting we're talking about the revealing the flaws because that makes me think about the shiny labor you know, the shiny labor is where we come to wash, you know, and purify all and remove all the blemishes. And it actually doubles as a mirror, which is so funny because this week, when we learn about the image of the menorah, <clears throat> we learn that it is a mirror image. It uses the word mare, which is like this, this vision. And it's actually related pretty close to the word for mirror, like a reflection, so to speak. So what I was thinking of was the letter that Yaakov wrote, chapter one. And he says, let's see here in verse 23. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer. So in other words, if you spend all your time on Nishma, as opposed to nase, which is we will hear, but we're supposed to be the doer. Nase is do. Nishma is we will hear, right? So if we spend all this time hearing but not doing, then it says he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. Verse 24, for once he looks at himself and goes away, he immediately forgets what sort of person he was. And I think about verse 23 being the, the light, like revealing our flaws. And it's interesting that that happens through us hearing, you know, because we can go all day thinking, oh, I'm, I'm the greatest person ever. But let someone critique you. Let, let some, uh, some incident happen and you have to, what, hear about it. <laughs> You're like, oh, I was doing great till you said something. <laughs> it's like, were you? But verse 25 but the one who looks intently into the perfect torah the torah that gives freedom by the way that's the torah of the messiah and the torah uh that gives freedom and continues in it not becoming a hearer who forgets but a doer who acts he shall be blessed in what he does and so i was thinking about the whole aspect of the intention of our flaws being revealed is for us to take action to rectify. And one of the things that my rabbi, Rabbi Trugman Shlita, brought down this week in his teaching on the parasha is that we are to all make shuva. And shuva is not for just because you've done something wrong. Shuva means you want to get closer. And we have this interesting uh, definition for sin. It's called missing the mark, right? Which we know is breaking Torah. So anytime you violate the Torah, you miss the mark. So to clear that up. So if you think about always getting closer, your teshuva is the fact that, yes, we are sinners. But the goal is to sin less and less and less, get closer and closer and closer to the mark. And that's what teshuva is. This is why you can always say, make teshuva for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
Yeah, that's interesting you bring that up because <clears throat> I was thinking the Orkayim's comment on uh, chapter six. Um, you know, a man or a woman who commit any of man's sins to commit treachery towards Hashem. That's the word that the Humash uses. Treachery. Treachery. That's how it's translated by our scroll. And the Orkaim says, the verse says to commit treachery toward Hashem rather than saying and committed treachery toward Hashem as it does elsewhere. This implication is that the sin is not only itself the treachery toward Hashem, but is rather a stepping stone to the treachery. This can be explained in the light of the words of the sages of blessed memory in Bhava Kama 110a, see Rashi there, who said that the passage here is speaking about one who lied in response to his fellow's claim that he owes him money, and he then swore falsely to him. See, this is another flaw that the divine light reveals. Ultimately, this is the ultimately this is the point that the archive is it makes, especially in this parsha, because then yeah. later on we deal with the uh, the sota. But it's not just about the woman. Well, yeah, the husband gets caught up in jealousy, right? And brings his wife, whom he suspects of being unfaithful. But in reality, it's a two-way street because in marriage, there's a tendency to provoke one another to anger or to do things you wouldn't normally do. Um you know, the rabbis asked that question, you know, what the what did the husband do to cause his wife to act in this manner? To actually run out. You know, and, and to be unfaithful in the first place. So you know, like it really goes back to the garden, you know. Well, the wife gave me to eat and I did eat, you know, it's passing the buck, it's not being taking responsibility for your actions is not allowing yourself to become accountable for what one does. You know, because the archive speaks of two things, treachery and lying. And also, I know he brings up money, which motivates a lot of people. Money does strange things to people. Um, <laughs> you know, the... <laughs> It's amazing what people are willing to do to get their hands on, like, say, a large sum of money. For some reason, they just lose themselves. They forget what manner of person they are. You know, it's like that verse in James that you read. <clears throat> you know, in the CJB, that uh, verse 24 in that chapter reads, who looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what he looks like. Hmm. So we need to remember what we look like when we look in the mirror of the Torah. Um, wow, that's amazing because the Torah is called faces. Like the Arizal says there's 600,000 faces in the Torah. 
There's 600,000 letters in the Torah. Yeah, they call them faces. And those 600,000 letters are the 600,000 souls of the B'nai Yisrael that came out of Mitzrayim. So literally, we have an identity found in the Torah. Yeah, it's all As wrapped they used up to in say, it. back in the church days, our identity <laughs> is found in Christ. So it's so funny because, yeah, it's found in the Torah. That's what we look like. <laughs> yeah, it shows, you, it shows you the manner of person you presently are. And yet what you could be if you per, in, if you perform the mitzvot with, in, faithfully. Because Habakkuk 2 verse 4 and the, the Zadik will live by his faithfulness. Uh, Shahu quotes that I don't know how many times. In his letters, in the apostolic writings, you know that's an action. That's that's not passive. You know, and and in in speaking, you know, I'm speaking of the theological system, not Christian congregants or of the like. You know, but that is missing in the theological system and and it's foistered upon congregants yeah. that oh, you don't have to do anything you know you've accepted Jesus you got him in your heart you know and the reality of that one is there's really no indication of such a thing in the Torah but rather like in the case of Abraham when Hashem speaks of him to Isaac and says that he, Hashem considered him a friend. Why? Because, you know, Shomer mitzvot, he guarded the mitzvot, he treasured them. He taught it to his children. Um, so. Before you go on, I think it's really neat that you mentioned that we're not picking on congregants. Because I get this sense that there's a lot of Christian people that are like totally not fitting the bill of what a Christian would typically be. You know, the Sunday only church and, uh, you know, in active in all the ministries. And then, you know, I, I believe in Jesus and that's all I do. You know, um, I'm literally just now getting linked up with a guy who, uh, is Christian faith and his dad, I guess, is like a teacher or deacon or something. And he is hungry for Torah. And all the Kabbalah, the Kabbalah, like, yeah, he's all like, yeah, so ain't so uh, the, the four worlds. <laughs> and I just told him, I was like, so you know about the levels of soul? He was like, no. <laughs> So got to teach him about that. And like, he's just like, this is incredible. I was trying to tell my dad, like my dad was like, I don't know what you're talking about. This is weird, you know? And I'm just like, dude. So he's just like, yeah, I'm a Christian, but you know, I want the deeper stuff. Like I want to go there. And I'm like, okay. Like, so it's really neat. You know, you really, you think, you know, someone in some way, but, I mean, it's just until you know that person, you know? Yeah, I mean, um, 
the one piece of halakha regarding the study of Kabbalah when you become a student of Kabbalah is know the Tanakh. Yep. And he, he, he confessed that too before I even said anything because I'm always like, okay, Kabbalah without Torah is witchcraft. You know, and it's just kind of like he said, so here's my thing. Like, I want to learn this stuff, but I know I'm going to have to, like, learn the Torah, which means, like, I'm probably going to have to do it. <laughs> just like, dude, you're just, you're just fucking yourself. This is crazy. <laughs> that is something. I mean, you know, that's interesting because when we were out in California, um, a guy who used to date my wife's twin sister for a while, uh, his name is Herb, and he came up to me asking, you know, I would like to learn Torah because I'm discovering that, you know, there are some things that are amiss and are not uh, lining up. They just don't make any sense to me. And I said, sure, you know, you know, I can, I can teach you. I can um, show you. You know, a little bit here, a little bit there, you know, because one thing I don't like to do is to overwhelm people. Man, you know, <laughs> the struggle is real. It's real easy to do because you get all excited. Oh, this person wants to know Torah, you know, and and you have to govern your passions, you know. Yeah. And, and just take your time and take it slow. You got to bring that mountain down to a burning bush, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. No, it's amazing. Yeah, I, totally. That's um, fantastic. You know, that's that's Hashem. You know, I mean, all together. Um, and you know, it's it's really a miracle because the institution. I mean, it further spins off, you know, into craziness. But you know, the mercy of Hashem allowing people to to be able to be delivered from that. You know, and finding him through that you know kind of thing and it's just kind of like wow so there is a distinction between the church and an actual like christian so i mean it's it's amazing all right let's turn to uh the part um uh five verse 12 from parashal naso you know, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, any man whose wife shall go astray. Hmm. Lord points to three particular peculiarities in the wording of this verse. The Torah uses a double expression. Speak and say. Which is the bear and Vea Marta. Hmm. It also changes its terminology, switching from the term speak, whose root is the bear, to the term say, whose root is Omer. Like Omer le Zion, say to Zion. Soft Seemingly, speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, seemingly, even if a double expression is needed, it could have said say, more to the children of Israel and tell Be'amarta them using the root Omer both times. 
An additional point to be addressed is that the verse uses a double expression, ish, ish, any man, literally, a man, a man, instead of saying just ish, a man. Orkayim first accounts for the phrase speak and say both in terms of, a, of the double expression as well as the change in terminology. The reason the Torah says speak and say is because there are two types of women who are subject to the Sota procedure described in our passage. One who is innocent of adultery and the other who is defiled. The passage, the passage goes on to say that when a defiled woman drinks the Sota waters, her stomach distends and her thigh collapses. Whereas a pure woman is enhanced by the waters and she shall bear seed, verse 28, meaning that she will bear children more successfully. I mean, immediately as I read this, I'm thinking of the parable of the sower. In this context. What you got on that? What are you thinking? Um, you know, a sower went out to sow. Uh, some seed fell among stony ground. Some seed fell among the thorns. Other wow. seed fell by the wayside. And then some seed fell into good soil. Like the either the pure or the defiled woman. Yeah. By the wayside means, okay, so if such a person is found to be impure, what happens to them? They're put outside the camp. They're isolated from everyone else, especially with the sin of Lashon Hara, Sara'at, the Metzora. You're in an isolated tent. You're outside the perimeter of the tribes that surround the tribes of the Levites that surround the Mishkan. So you're out there. You're by yourself. You have no contact with anyone. Wow. You know, like in the case of Miriam, which is coming up in Parasar Shalak, where, you know, she spake about Moshe's wife and the consequences were pretty quick there. Yeah. <clears throat> and she was outside the camp set seven days. Imagine oh. not being able to welcome Shabbat with your family like you're like a, a good wife should. Yeah. All because you spoke against Moses. Yes. Dude. Again, light reveals flaws. How many people speak against Moses today? I can't tell you in my tenure how many times I've I've lost count. But that's another reason why this, the so-called church experienced so many problems. And something I, re, I came to me was the reason why we have all these denominations is because one person becomes offended at what some pastor says or congregant or whomever. And they decide, you know what, I'm going to start a denomination of my own. And now you have all these denominations. It's still going on. I mean, it's it's happened in 
the Pentecostal movement that I was a part of for a while. Um, even in my tenure, um, just want something one person said or a decision that the, for lack of a better description, higher ups in the company <laughs> decided to do that you needed to be a card carrying member which we will deal with in the next rumination. Um, but, you know, it's, you know, how do, how do people want to identify themselves? They, they want to be part of something that's larger than themselves. But the problem is if you don't govern that desire sufficiently enough and come to the realization that the only thing, the only identification that's worth anything in this world is the Torah. I mean, that's it. There, how, there can't be anything else. There's no other objective source by which to compare your actions, your thoughts, even. Compare your thoughts. <laughs> yeah. You know how I, profound that is? Because you know how we get asked our opinions on things. So what? So if you were in this situation, what would you do? You know, like what else can you use in the world as a governor and a comparison for your thoughts? That's another way to understand that verse in James. Who looks at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Man, wow. And then he says, but if a person looks closely into the perfect Torah, which gives freedom. See, that's important. The Torah declares our freedom. You will not find it in a man-made system of do's and don'ts because they're just foistering their view, their own personal standard of righteousness. As much as they espouse sticking to the scriptures, and many are sola scriptura, which always leads to misinterpretation, Ooh. you'll never get anywhere. You won't experience what it is to be righteous in his sight. Because this is what it means in Isaiah that all our, our righteousness is filthy rags apart from what Hashem has commanded us to do, which all his commandments are altogether righteous. That's Psalms 119. Um, Psalm 19, verse 8, the Torah of Adonai is perfect, restoring the soul. <laughs> the Torah is perfect. Just like Yaakov repeated. Yeah, he, just, he, he uses that phrase. I like the fact that David Stern you, puts it that way in the CJB. Because wow. he's giving us a remez for the psalm that I just quoted. Yeah. That's amazing. I never thought of that. Yeah. I, I like David. I like the CJB. Um because David Stern is, he's a Jew himself, so he's very sensitive to these things. And he really does bring it out. Um, 
But he says down in verse 26, anyone who thinks he's religiously observant but does not control his tongue is deceiving himself and his observance counts for nothing. Yikes. (laughs) You know what Martin Luther said about this letter? What? He said it's just a pile of straw. It just... It just poked holes in his theology. He did not like it. See, this is... So wait, a pile of straw was able to poke holes in his theology? Mm-hmm. That That's saying something about your theology if straws can poke a hole in your stuff. <laughs> the irony is obvious, I think. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he, he, he just shot yourself in the foot with that <laughs> unfortunately um goodness now now running through my head is how many substances can be poked through with a straw <laughs> the religious observance that god the father considers pure and faultless is this to care for orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself being contaminated by the world. There's temple language there. Right. Whenever, whenever I read James, I immediately go to First Yokanon. Always. <laughs> yeah? What you got? Um, I'll just hop over there. I'm doing this on my phone. Okay. Two. I was going to say that whole temple talk with the contaminated because remember, there's McBoat all around the temple. Mm-hmm. So well, they surrounded the perimeter of the temple. Yeah. Because that's... that's where Peter declared his message of, of Teshuva on Savahot. This <sighs> totally gets missed by the church altogether. They think it's the birthday of the church. Uh, no, I don't see two peoples, two distinct peoples being mentioned in scripture. Right. <laughs> you know, what you got first, John? Uh, first John two, three through six. The way we can be sure we know him is if we are obeying his commands anyone who says i know him but isn't obeying his commands is a liar the truth is not in him there's a lot of people i know were have us they they would they would be shaken by that yeah bezrod Hashem, which would mean you start telling the truth if you're one who holds to anti-Semitic theology that denigrates the Torah and Moshe, which ultimately denigrates Mashiach, then yep. you are a liar. The truth is not in you, and the Torah is truth. But if someone keeps doing what he says, that is Hashem, then truly love for God has been brought to its goal in him. This is how we are sure that we are united with him. 
a person who claims to be continuing in union with him ought to conduct his life the way he did. Bingo. Yeah. So while scripture passages certainly indicate that the law reveals sin, see now this is Shaul, Romans, I would not know what sin is except by the Torah. There is something missing from this theological misdirection. The effect of the revelation of Hashem always reveals man's frailty and sin. This is actually a good thing. Shabbat 88a. When we were given the Torah from Mount Sinai and Hashem was speaking, every word he spoke literally caused our souls to separate from our bodies. Which literally means we died, right? Mm -hmm. So if we know that the wages of sin are death, right? So it's like, not that Hashem's words is like sin, but the consequences of sin take place immediately when the word of Hashem is spoken, right? But what happened? What's the rest of the story? Our souls left our bodies and Hashem said, stop, go back down, return to Shuvah, right? So in other words, this instantaneous death has to be followed up with Teshuva. You know what's interesting, the word he met? If you yeah. drop the Aleph, um, you have the word uh, Mot. And the Bob's not included, though, but, you know, it can be inferred. You know, and Mot is the Hebrew word for death. So without truth, there's death. Yeah. The Aleph. Which is the name of Hashem. It's combined Gematria being 26. Um, which oh, we have another passage here. In which the year, you know, by the way, just real quick, because we do a lot of mystical stuff here. But we know there's a Citra Akra mystical stuff that's going on in the world and guess what their source is the name of Hashem so what I what blow, blows my mind is that the name of Hashem is being used to power things that bring death and destruction but the name of Hashem ultimately can bring life and resurrection so I just think this is absolutely crazy that, you know, we're talking about if if there's a death like the Shabbat 88, and then you take you have the no truth and then you bring the truth back, you know, the Aleph and everything. It's just like, OK, so 
if Hashem can animate literally, you know, death, you know, and it's just like, but people continue to pull that olive out of it. Like how much more life is possible because you put the olive with the mem in the top. That's just, wow. Anyway, just wanted to go there because uh, we should, we should, we should have talked about that. Oh yeah, <laughs> no, no problem. That's good. I mean, I I always love this uh, quote from Isaiah six. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw Hashem sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim; each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one cried to another, Holy, holy, holy is Hashem of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. All the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, Hashem of hosts. Was the purpose of Isaiah's vision simply so he would know that he was a sinner? Wow. Wow. I mean, that question, like Isaiah 6, is just like, here you go, you sinner. <laughs> just like you really just took somebody into the throne room just to like, <laughs> just rail them. <laughs> that, this, it's absurd. It's man-centered. The flaw in that, in that theology is so apparent, so astounding. Self-incriminating. You know, it was the, it was a revelation of the Holy One of Israel, blessed be he. Yeshayahu didn't need to be told he was a sinner because he already confessed it. What verse is not in this chapter? Yes, Isaiah, correct. You are a sinner. Shame on you. <laughs> no. <laughs> that, that's not even in the Midrash. <laughs> no. I mean, I, I stress this point all the time and that the Torah is the revelation of the righteousness of Hashem. First and foremost, that's what it is. It reveals who he is. And it reveals his Messiah. Just as the flaws of a work are revealed in daylight, so are our weaknesses. Like I'll give an example. You wash your car, right? And you think you did a good job, but then you walk around after it's dry and you see this little streak of dirt 
like say on your door and you go, oh man, <laughs> missed the yep. spot, you know. You know, that that's all that is. And you just go back and you just touch it up. Yeah, because the rest of the car looks nice. Yeah. But let's not deceive ourselves, shall we? This is the whole reason why I always, if I wash my car, I always walk around it so I don't miss a spot. That's like with the Torah. That's why we always come back to these Parsha every single year. Why? Because you're going to find a spot that you missed in your character. So did you just say that the Torah portion is a character study? They all are. Wow. Every every one of these parashiot are a reflection. And I'm, okay. I, it, it, this is mystical. I mean, you know, it's... <laughs> wow. All our thoughts... All our actions, you know, the world of the world of Asira and Yetzira as well, because thoughts form in our mind. See, this is why meditation is important in Kabbalah, because the, the first thing you focus on is your breathing, so that you're conscious of it. And so as you progress through your meditation, you, depending upon which one you're doing, like say the four worlds or the, the Sephirot or the four archangels or, or the, the divine light, all those things are going to reveal your, your flaws. You're going to realize it only though, and this is a prerequisite once again, repeating that make sure you know the Tanakh, you know, the first and foremost, the Torah, make sure you know it as best as possible because you're going to need it. It's your foundation on which you're building your house, your, your emunah, uh, your bitakon, your confidence, because you're going to need it when you get into the mystical because um, it serves as a foundation so you don't get spiritually shipwrecked by engaging in an aspect of Kabbalah that you're not familiar with or not accustomed to, um, that you haven't uh, mastered, you know, which is my advice to anyone regarding that. Um, because the interesting thing about it is, you know, we see how man-centered that statement, you know, when he says, you know, so he would know that he was a sinner. All the meditations, they're not centered on us. They're on him. You know, and without the Torah to help us and keep us firmly planted, you know, you'll be shipwrecked on some island, you know. And isolated. <laughs> yeah. Trying to make a fire and get bit by a snake. <laughs> oh, now you're talking Acts 28. <laughs> yeah. That actually happened. <laughs> yeah, you got me. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, just as the flaws of a work are revealed in daylight, so are our weaknesses, our failings, our sins are revealed in his presence. And just as a candle is subsumed in the brilliance of the midday sun, so is our meager obedience to his righteous standard is as filthy rags. Uh, well, let us not be confused. The purpose of the Torah is not to reveal sin. May it never be said. May we never think it. Amen. The purpose of the Torah is to reveal Hashem. It's to, it is to reveal Mashiach. Which, by the way, this is how we bring Mashiach. Talk about motivation. I mean, we want to see him, but the Torah is showing us what he's like, what he what he did. I recall someone always talking about grace is found in the first Torah portion. Well, what else is found in the first Torah portion? When we were utterly sinful, Hashem came looking for us. And he wasn't concerned about our, like, appearance. He was concerned about our location. And how did we get separated from him? That's what he was concerned about. Which means... If you think about the revelation of Hashem, is all about uh, why are you not closer to me? You know what's interesting about that? Um, in Genesis, when he asks, you know, Adam, where are you? It's not in the physical sense. It's, it's, I'm quite convinced that it's entirely mystical and that it's Kabbalah and that he's asking him that question because he was separate he separated himself from the to, from the totality of Hashem he was no longer clothed in light the hebrew word or alef vav resh but now clothed in skin basar but instead it's ayin vav resh My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When Yeshua was on the stake, the crucifixion stake, when Esther was in the hall of the idols of King Akashverosh. So this moment of where are you? Like that's the intensity of it. It's so far beyond sin that it's crazy because if you think, what did Esther do for the Ruach HaKodesh to depart from her? She was just, she was walking towards the king, you know, trying to save the, save the Jews. What was Yeshua doing? Trying to save the Jews. But what was Adam doing? Playing with fig leaves. Trying to cover up his missed yeah. on his own. That's a filthy rag. And when he was found, which by the way, wasn't hard to do. It's just like, okay, I'm the master of the universe. I created everything. 
Uh, anyway, uh, he decided to play the blame game. It's like, so, so how many flags are going up right now? And then you look at the double tacoon from Esther and Yeshua. Neither one of them hid. They were both bare. You know, like, here I am. This is it, you know, and it's my fault. I'm taking the blame. Which is just like, wow, of a reversal. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, when I was explaining about the two Hebrew words there and how skin or begins with the letter Ayin, you get that if you subtract the gematria of Nekiva from Zakir. Yeah, the female from the male. Yeah. Woo. And you have 70. And it's also the word for I. Yeah, come on. You know, and so oh, she whoa. saw that the tree was good and to make one wise. What does James say concerning the wisdom that is earthly? It's sensual. It's devilish. And what did the Nakash do with Eve? Poison. Sensuality. That's what, that's, the, that's what the rabbis say in the Talmud. Yeah. Poison her thinking. This connects with the Sota. She became defiled. Yep. And what does Adam do? He follows suit. He does the same thing. Oh, honey, here. There's some fruit. You'll love it. (laughs) What does he do? He bites into it, and all of a sudden, uh, where's Hashem? (laughs) Yep. He's like, and Hashem's, no, I'm looking for you. What's up with these fig leaves, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, you know, separation from the totality of Hashem. You know, because now we're talking in Adam Kadmon, the primordial man, the pre-revelatory state, you know, uh, Ein Sof, the infinite nothing, which the four, the, the, this is what the Tetragrammaton points to. It points to him who is infinite. He has no beginning. He has no end. And I, I'm just amazed that most people don't realize this, that that in of itself is also a vote of Zara. Wow. Because you're, you're taking the name, the four letters, and you're saying, this is Hashem. You just put him into a box. You just made a form. And then, see, this is the other thing about light. It reveals our flaws in our thinking. It reveals the flaws of the theological system, our feeble attempts to understand him. You know, like the Council of Nicaea, when they arguing about the Godhead, as they like to call it. Yep. Which they were talking about Keter, which is in three parts. <laughs> but how you gonna 
understand Keter if you don't even understand Malkut. I.e., simple faith, Torah observance, Shema Yisrael. Like, if you ain't on that level, then what you doing way up there? <laughs> you shouldn't be up there. <laughs> because, like David said in the psalm, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, meaning that it's hidden. Yeah, which is, which is a like to say effort, but it's created thousands of years of ridiculousness. You know, it's it's hmm, it's camouflaged Hashem. It, it skewed our ability that He wants to give us, so that we can understand Him the way we should. Because we have to remember, he dwells in unapproachable light. You know, Which us looks like darkness. Yeah. He dwells in the darkness, too. I believe that's uh, Isaiah 43, I believe. I'm entirely sure about that one, but it's right around there, I think. There's only one way to find out. Yep. There's a couple of passages in Isaiah. While you're looking that up, I'll read these two verses. For if you believed Moshe, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. And that's the Okinawan 546. For Mashiach is the goal of the Torah and righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moshe writes about the righteousness of the Torah. The man who does these do, uh, does those things shall live by them. Romans 10, 4 and 5. And he's quoting Habakkuk 2, verse 4. Wow, I'm getting the first Timothy six sixteen. That's crazy. Who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light and whom no eye has seen or can see to him be honor and might forever. Yeah, that's going to be in Isaiah for sure. Because I think that is like basically uh, mashing up some verses. But on that note, with Yeshua saying, I come from the Father, <laughs> I, I, I've seen him. It's just like, wait, what? <laughs> you apparently don't have eyes because <laughs> you can't see him with eyes. Yeah, when he speaks of this light, no human being has ever seen or can see. He's talking about the or ain't so. This is what he's talking about here. That's a reference to the or ain't so. Yes. Wow. That's Kabbalah, man. Ooh. It ain't anything else. <laughs> <laughs> 
We can't see that. It's why? Because we're separated from the totality of Hashem ever since Adam HaRishon. I mean, we're having the work of rectification for Adam HaRishon. What chapter of Isaiah you said? 45? Somewhere around there. In the 40s, I think. Um, We're going to get this verse. Let's write a shim. Verse 45, 7. I create, I form light and create darkness. Yep. There we go. Darkness shall cover the earth, gross darkness, the people, but the Lord shall arise upon you. That's 60. Let's start with 45. I did a search for that word in my Hebrew lexicon, and I got all kinds of words. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> like me, Hoshech. A dark place. Right. You know, like like the verse you're quoting in Isaiah, the people who sat in darkness, a dark place. I don't know if it I don't know if that verse in the Tanakh uses the word uh mehoshek. Uh ma meek. Yeah, dark place, hiding place, uh, mach arets, dark region, man. And then we have another word, eif and oaf, which is ayin yod, face uh, feet. And then Ayin Vav Feisofit. Oh, dark. it's a verb. Wow. Qualitative. Be dark. The people who sat in a dark place. And then we have another word, Zalal. Be or grow dark, qualitative. Grew dark, like evening came on. And then hmm. another one, uh, Hashaka, darkness. 
supernatural. Mm. So telling eighteen eleven says he made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, the dark rain clouds of the sky. Isaiah 40, verse 22, he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and he spreads them out like a tent to live in. Yeah, it's just going with uh, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 40, Isaiah 45, Isaiah 50, and Isaiah 60. Mm. Mm. Here's another word, uh, Av, which is Aim, Vait, dark cloud, cloud mass, thicket. Dark cloud, rain cloud as high chariot of <clears throat> covering his eyes, casting the shadow as swift and transient in all similitude, uh, disposed by God, cloud of dew. Well, dew. this makes sense about why Hashem came down on the mountain and it was thick cloud and darkness. So, definitely what you bring it down. Yeah, betok ha anan. Okay. Well, I think that's that's some good circles around that, though. As far oh. as highlighting those points and connecting them together, like the Sephiroth. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, like uh, circles. Well, it's yeah, cool. and yeah, remembering that um, the Torah is the Yesod descending down to Malkut. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um. Okay. Yeah, because you, you think about how outside of our Earth's atmosphere and as we go into the galaxies, it's like it's dark out there. Except for the lights of the stars, the luminaries, the different galaxies. You know, and then we just keep pushing beyond that and it's like into further darkness. It's like the closer you get to Hashem, you go through darkness, basically. Which... Obviously, just a good Musar point and an encouragement point for us that when we go through darkness in our life, that's what those times are for. They're actually bringing us closer to Hashem. 
because we actually we are forced to make decisions, you know, that we never would have made otherwise. You know, I learned from my sickness this past week, you know, I have to be I need to be stronger, like not just physically, but mentally, like to think, okay, this is a heavy situation. You know, I don't think I can handle it. And it's like this situation is coming at you because you have to learn how to handle it. You know, and it's just like, well, I don't feel like it. <laughs> it's like, oh, oh, that's really what it was. And it's like, do we have to talk about that? <laughs> but no, but in all seriousness, you know, it's like this darkness, especially what's going on in the world. It's a challenge for us in this generation, you know, and back to my friend I was talking about, you know, he was just like some people think like the mystical stuff is too much and you start getting into Kabbalah. It's 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 too much for them. And it's like, yeah, it might be too much for them. But for those who need it, for those who want it. And I mean, this is what the world is missing. This is the light. We got to go get it. We got to do it. You know. And it's just kind of like, yes, through these dark times, Hashem has so much depth and mysteries that he's just like, okay, here you go. Is there anybody here to take it? Is the faith that Yeshua was saying, will he find when he returns that kind of faith? You know, like what's going on? Are people willing to stand up in the darkness? You know, so I was just like, okay, I can I can do this starts with my mind <laughs> you know it's incredible what we can do like you ever thought about that how yeah, much I... we can physically and spiritually and mentally do like we can do a lot so, you know that goes to the point where Hashem enables us to obey him yeah I mean, Shaul says righteousness to everyone who believes. I'm considered righteous because I believe. That's what he's saying there. But belief, a meme is a verb. See, this is what gets missed. You know? You know, after the fact, you know, um, because he also says, when I want to do good, the Yatsa Haraj there, and I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. I mean, oh, you mean like crouching at the door, like he told Cain? Cain, yeah. So Shaul now is rehashing <laughs> Genesis 4. <laughs> and you know what's the greater sin that Cain committed? Oh. The fact that he didn't do anything about it. He didn't do not, anything? Not the, actual, not the actual sin of murder. No, it's because he did not do anything about it. Wow. I mean, I was watching Rabbi Foreman on Aleph Beta about this when he gets to this because he's talking about Yaboom because Adam and Hava did an act of proto Yaboom when they gave birth to Seth because they had to continue in a sense, the name of Hevel. 
Right. But Cain was supposed to continue the name. Yes, he was supposed to guard his brother. He was supposed to lift him up. He was supposed to enable him. What generations could have come from him? Of righteous men, Torah scholars. From Cain. From Hevel. Oh, from the, yeah. the, the Arizal says that he was mostly good. Yeah, he had a little evil in him, and Arizal speaks of Cain that he was mostly bad with a little good. There were two opposites, basically. So now we take this ten generations to Noah after after the Mabul, right? And, yeah. You know, Noah's drunk in his tent. He's got no clothes on, and um, Cain comes walking in. And sees his nakedness, and then he walks and tells his brothers about it. And I like go, "You did what? Their act was good by grabbing the blanket, walking backwards, and covering their father's nakedness. But what did they do about their brother? Hmm. They again, they didn't do anything. It was Noah that got up and realized what happened, and he cursed him." They could have wow. prevented that curse. Wow. That's heavy. So now we come another 10 generations to Terak, the father of Abraham, Nakor, and what was the other one? Because um, Sarai was married to, to him, and he dies at a young mm -hmm. age. Oh, man. Well, Nakor... Haran. Yeah, Haran. He was the one that got tossed. Yeah, Sarai in. was married to Haran before she was married to Abraham, but Haran died at a young age, and they were both and they're childless. Abraham, in an mm -hmm. act of proto yaboom, marries Sarai to continue Haran's name. This is what he should have done, but there are several incidences where. See, this is again light reveals flaws. He did, he was more concerned about his material um, uh, livelihood, you know, uh, Parnassa. Yeah. I wanted to move to, uh, I think it was, you know, Canaan. They wanted to move there and start over. But what were they doing? To continue because uh, Terak went with him. Oh, Haran was. Uh, oh, Nahor was Sarah's dad. Yeah, look at the Moftir for uh, Noach. You'll find it there. Okay. Yeah. Because it's uh, Genesis 11 29. Abraham and Nahor took wives for themselves. So right there. Yep. The name of Abraham's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife was Milka. Milka being the daughter of Haran. The father of Milka and Iska, which is Sarah. Yep. There you go.
Okay. And Rabbi Foreman presented this nice template where you see the word Shem, which is name. <clears throat> and what happens in succeeding verses is that the letters of the name separate after Noah. Wow. But what Abraham does to Yoboom, it comes back together. As I was just thinking uh, earlier when I said Cain, I was thinking of the potential of the souls that could have descended from Cain had he perpetuated his brother's name because we know that the Gilgul, the soul goes into the progeny of the honored deceased. And to think about a, a combination of Hevel and Cain into further generations. Like to take the good from Hevel and take the good from Cain and combine those. Like, that would have been awesome. Well, we know that Moshe is the Gilgul for Hevel. Right. Um. So there you go. So points being made. <laughs> Uh, the one who received the Torah and taught it to us. But see, wow. speak so loudly of Hevel. How many, how could he have disseminated Torah with what the Aries all says about him? You will never know. Right. Well, there's Torah study in the Olam Haba. That'll probably be one of the questions we can ask. <laughs> oh, you'll get an answer. <laughs> you'll be certain of that. <laughs> you know, but um, yeah, it's <clears throat> I thought that was really amazing when I was watching that for my Savaot study about the uh, Yaboom. Because we're talking the line of Mashiach here. Right. You know, right. I mean, I've been studying Ruth, the, the Benish High, and he's got some pretty amazing stuff, too. Yeah. How um, if Ruth did not, was not persistent enough to go with Naomi, then he would not have... Uh, you know, the line of Mashiach would not have continued because she, <laughs> the rabbis say that ultimately she, in the Midrash, you know, they say that ultimately Ruth would have been a nobody even though she was a, a princess in Moab. Wow. Basically like a dead-end job, you know. So now she comes to, becomes the ancestor of the Mashiach. That's crazy. And the grandmother and the grandmother great grandmother of Malik David. So there's another that's another act of Yaboom as well that Rabbi Foreman over at Aleph Beta points out. Yeah. Because this is something that only a uh, close family member, a brother of a deceased brother can perform. 
Um, Beautiful. So now we can move on to the next one, rumination. Are we in Beholotska now? Uh-huh. Wow. Woohoo. So here we go. Rumination 34. What identifies the disciple of Messiah? Is it a creed? A bumper sticker? A membership? I'll give you a chance there to weigh in on it. <laughs> uh, it's definitely not a bumper sticker. And I'm going to go with Ahava, which means love, which we know is the keeping of the mitzvot. Because mm-hmm. he says you'll, they'll know you're my disciples by your love. Then he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Which, by the way, I was looking up the source. I know it's Hassam Sofer uh, and a bunch of other drops, <clears throat> but all found in Shavile Pincus for this week. And he talks about the fact of kindling the lamps towards the center of the menorah that because Aharon kindled them a a miraculous thing would happen where the lamps would turn on their own but Aharon was like that's not enough because if other Kohanim light it that won't happen so I'm going to go ahead and kindle them towards the face so with that being said that represented Yerat Hashem, the higher level of fear of Hashem, the 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 offerings of the the princes from Parsha Naso represented lower level of fear of Hashem, like trepidation, fear of punishment, judgment. So kindling the menorah represents this like higher level, like I'm in awe, I'm in fear of Hashem, like holy, 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 like seraphim stuff. So now when the lamps turn towards the center, that represents Ahava Hashem. And he said he basically brings down the source that says the Ahava Hashem is the gift of fearing Hashem. So in other words, in order for you to truly have the love that identifies you as the is the Talmud of Yeshua, it's built off of two levels of fear and then the ahava is there and actually the ahava comes as a gift because you've done the work of subjecting yourself to the lower fears like the two fears so when you work on having your Hashem, when you work on having fear of Hashem, fear of heaven love of Hashem is granted to you from above so he, he has a beautiful six-page write-up on it, sourced out amazingness, but that's the short of it. And it's all found in this parasha. So when you talk about really what identifies the Talmud of Yeshua, it you have to have fear of Hashem first 
And then that level of love just shines and it just goes crazy, you know, which you think you spend so much time loving Hashem that you forget that you fear him, you know, because your love moves you in all those protocols, you know, just kind of the way that you have for your parents or your spouse or wherever, you know, you, you love them so much that you don't violate, you know, like a husband and a wife, for instance, we just talked about now. So if the husband and the wife are so in love with each other, they're not going to go out and do some philanderous things because their love is so high. They're just like, I'm in awe of you. I'm, I'm, you know, I don't want the fallout of a broken relationship. So I'm not going to do that. You know? So the, the level of what love actually does, is just, it's insane. And to think about Mashiach is like this huge uh, elevation. He just, takes all the lower parts, the low things and pulls them up, which is what the flame does when Aharon kindles it. It shines up and sparks up on its own. He starts the fire and then it's like, you know, he kindles it until it can raise on its own. Mm. Anyway, that's Mashiach. That's nice. Um, So over over the centuries, there have been numerous ways that so-called true believers of Jesus have identified themselves. Creeds and statements of I believe, as well as tie pins, necklaces, and bumper stickers are like secret handshakes between fellow members. But what is the real way to identify a disciple of Messiah? Of course, any child of the 1970s Jesus movement can tell you they will know we are Christians by our love. By our love. The popular camp song is derived from Yeshua's statement about his followers. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you love, if you have love for one another. That's John 13, 35. It sounds perfect, but out of context, it is without meaning or substance. Beloved, we do not know what love is without knowing how the Almighty defines it. And he has defined it again and again. And yet men are loath to obey him. And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. 1 John 4, 21. And I was reading Orkaim um, about um, <clears throat> chapter 8, verse 2, when he says, you know, you know, There's that again. <laughs> yep, those two words. Speak to Aharon and say to him, Deber and Veya Marta. 
We need to understand why the verse repeats itself by saying, speak to Aharon and say to him, when either of these phrases by itself would have been sufficient. Also, if the verse did wish to repeat the same idea, why did it do so with different words? Debera and Vea Marta, <clears throat> speak and say. To address these questions, Orkaim introduces a midrash relating to this passage and discusses it, its meaning. <clears throat> this issue may be explained in light of the words of the sages of less memory. <clears throat> Rashi based on Bamidbar Rabbah 15.6, and this is a quote. Why is the passage of the menorah written here at the beginning of this Parsha? Immediately after the passage describing the inauguration offerings of the Nisa'im, which is at the end of the previous parasha. It is because when Aharon saw the inauguration offerings of the Nesaim, he was distressed that neither he nor his tribe participated in the inauguration. To comfort Aharon, the Holy One, blessed is he said to him, I swear by your life, your portion is greater than theirs. For you light and prepare the menorah, menorah's lamps each evening and morning. By placing the passage of the menorah here, Hashem indicated to Aharon that his daily menorah service is greater than the Nesaim's inauguration offerings. The quote ends here. Orkayim points out three difficulties with this teaching. Now these words of the sages of blessed memory need clarification. How does this consolation relieve Aharon's distress over not being included in the inauguration of the Nisa'im? Why the act of kindling the menorah is not a parallel of the inauguration offerings? The inauguration offerings were part of a special one-time event commemorating the start of the divine service in the Mishkan, whereas lighting the menorah was a standard daily service. How can one compensate for the other when they are so different in nature and purpose? Two, also, if the daily service does not compensate for the inaugural service, why did Hashem not appease Aharon with the fact that all the regular offerings of the Mishkan would be offered by him? such as the daily Tamid offerings, the Shabos and Yom Tov, Musaf offerings, and the daily Keteret incense offerings. Three, what is more even than the inauguration offerings themselves were only donated by the Nesim, not performed by them? It was Aharon <laughs> who actually offered the offerings and performed all their services. Why did Hashem not appease Aharon with the fact that he was the one who performed the service of these very inauguration offerings? Why did he appease him only with the daily service of the menorah? That's legit. They only donated, but he actually offered him. He's the one, uh, Zavak, he slaughtered them. Wow. He placed them upon the altar. He placed the Keteret on the Mizbeach Keteret. Well, Aaron wasn't so much worried about the offering per se as what's behind the offering. The fact of how did that offering get here? Because, I mean, to all his credit, 
like they their offering wouldn't count if it wasn't put on the altar, right? Mm-hmm. Well, so, the, the other thing is the animal could not be distressed when being slaughtered. Wow. So who's looking out for their brother now, right? <laughs> wow. That, that's the that's the halakha of kashrut of um, Shakita. Bro, you said we have to have love for one another, right? So the Kohen Hagadol literally expresses his love towards his fellow Jew by the fact that he keeps their offering safe and guarded all the way through the process of the Corbin to take place. Because had it come under any kind of blemish, had there been any kind of stress in the slaughtering, it would have been invalidated. Mm-hmm. So Aharon took part in that 12 times, and he was just like, but I didn't, I didn't get to be a part of that. <laughs> it's just like, wait, what? Do you realize what you just did? for 12 straight days you didn't skip a day <laughs> anyway or how time though <laughs> yeah what does isaiah say concerning yeshua when he is about to be executed he was like a lamb led to the slaughter and he opened not his mouth He said very, Yeshua said very few words to Pilate. And he didn't say a word to Herod Antipater uh, altogether. He did not say one word to him. Wow. Minimizing stress, because remember what Luke's description (laughs) of his prayer in, in Gethsemane? Yeah. On Harze team. Yeah. That were, as it were, great drops of blood. I cannot even imagine the level of stress at that moment. I don't think any of us can. The enormity of the next few hours that came upon him. Kept quiet. You know, it's it's amazing, you know, because the Orkaim also gets into the menorah here about the preparation of it, because that's what this part is about. Yeah. You don't just get to walk up to the menorah and be like, okay. <clears throat> you you literally are ascend. Beha Arloteca. When you ascend. There's another word there, uh, Aliyah, to ascend. You you ascend up to the Bima to read the Torah. Ooh, kindling the menorah is like ascending to the Bima. Oh, oh. And then you have the Olay who recites the, the the Torah blessings. You're not the one who recites them when you're called to read. It's the Olay that recites the Torah blessings. 
bro. That's that's insane. <laughs> do Do you see how everyone has a part in the service? This is this is why Aharon was distressed. Where is my part in the service? And Hashem says, I swear by your life that your portion is greater. Because they're just bringing it one time. Ooh. Ooh. Oh. There's a C-fray on this offering section of the, the princess that says Hashem accepted things that he normally will not accept, namely people putting incense on the outer altar. A one-time thing? It's just a one-time thing. There, see, there you go, man. Why, why, see, this, I think this is why Aharon got distressed and wondered. <clears throat> but, you know, who wouldn't, you know? This is why Yeshua said, You'll do greater things than I will. <laughs> You're saying what I'm doing is just this one-time thing. That's what the writer of Hebrews writes. One, he offered himself up without blemish, without defect, and sat at the right hand of the throne of authority. One what time. A, that's some Bruce Lee stuff right there. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh. Once and for all. This is Good. a shadow that's pointing to that. Yep. <laughs> you know, and he what do you, what do you get theologians saying? Away with these shadows. It's because they don't know a lick of Hebrew. Of the idioms that are present in the Torah, in the Tanakh, the language that the sages use in the Mishnah, have no idea. I mean, what do they do when they read Psalm 91? He who sits in the oh. shadow of the Almighty, or he who dwells in a secret place. Yeah, Yosef call it a secret place. Don't call it a shadow. It's too yeah. weird. Too close. <laughs> Hot button, you know, <laughs> shall dwell under the that's a little. You say it, don't you say shadow? I'm gonna say it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nothing wrong with shadows, man. I mean, if you clearly do a practical take of shadows, that means you're standing pretty close to the object that's casting. Yes, absolutely. And you get people say, oh, I see Jesus. Really? Are then you in a shadow? Why aren't you keeping the commandments? Because every mitzvot is a shadow pointing to him. Just like your lamp. Yeah. Any object in between the, the bulb that emits the light and where the shadow is casting on gives you an idea of what it looks like. But let's be clear here. It's not a shim.
Because we have to remember, nowhere in the Gospels, in the Basora, do you ever, ever see that he says, oh, I'm God, you should worship me. Not one place. Yep. Because when Thomas says, my Lord, and my God noticed the order of the wording there, of the Pasuk, my master, who's in the authority of Hashem. Oh. Because, <clears throat> because uh, in the Dalish, you see the word Elohim, which is in strict, the attribute of Gavura, the authority. Right. Of, like the judge. Yeah. yeah. The judges are called Elohim, like the Sanhedrin. The sages are referred to as such, because what does Yochanan say in 4 verse 1? Behold, what manner of love, ahava, the Father has bestowed on, on us, that we, Anachnu, should be called Ben Elohim. Wow. This goes back to what I always say, Mashiach's not a singularity. Because Bruh. the sages were referred to as Ben Elohim. Okay, there's that. And he takes a drink. Look, <laughs> I'm. Uh, yes, look, I'm. Say la over here. Dude, He's like, you know what? Or Kaim has got some amazing stuff on the menorah, man. This is going to. Oh, my goodness. Is he, Are you going to light it up? Yeah, I'm going to read it right now. <laughs> okay, the lamps of the menorah. The Orkayim lays the groundwork for a new approach to this midrash by exploring a question about the menorah's lamps. The lamps of the menorah were bowl-shaped receptacles on the top of each branch to hold the oil and had a spout-like opening on one side of the wick. Rashi on Shemot 2531 and verse 37 where the lamps affixed to the menorah or were they separate components that could be removed and replaced this matter can be resolved when we consider what the sages said in tractate the men of cult in, in chapter Shite uh, Midos 88b which is that order of the Mishnah how does one perform the service of preparing the menorah's lamps. He removes the lamps from the menorah and leaves them in the Ohel Moed, i.e. in the sanctuary where the menorah stood. He then, this is real, this is what kind of grabbed me and I thought of a, something that Yeshua said. He then wipes them clean with a sponge and puts oil in them. Then the quote ends here. Guess what <clears throat> I, I have in my head that Yeshua says to the Pharisees, and it's in Matayahu. Is this the cup drop? Matayahu uh, 23. Go for it. You may clean the outside of the cup. Yeah, yeah okay. But inside... Is full of dead men's bones and all corrupt, you know, all co corruption. Yeah. 
hypocrite first clean the inside of the cup and then the outside will be clean nice or her time huh <laughs> the author oh, of the teaching did you just like, realize what you just said <laughs> from the or Hakim? that the bulbs have to be removed <clears throat> the menorah i have the the cup screw onto it yeah so in other words have to have like this temporary like you step down like yeah. what Yeshua did he left his his place to come down here you know and same thing with the the pharisees if they were willing to step down from their place that they exalted themselves to for the cleansing process to only be reinstated because remember you're exalted when you're humbling yourself again that humbling process is that that level of you know what Maybe I shouldn't be here. Maybe I'm not fit for this. You know? And then through that, just like you take the, the lamps of the menorah, you wash them, you know, you, t- you take them off. I mean, with, with my menorah that I have, you know, sometimes I do unscrew the bowls. So yeah. I have your time cleaning them, like say with the paper towel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because when I put fresh oil in them, guess what? The light burns brighter. There's no contaminants. This is exactly why Aharon has to clean them. Let your light so shine before men oh. that they see your good works. Tov Asa. Wow. And glorify or honor Hod. Oh, there's a Sephira Hod. Here we go. Your father who's in heaven. This is how you get up to Keter. Yeah. This is how you do it, the right way. So, you see, and once I clean the bowls of the menorah, and actually before I even fill them with olive oil, before I use it, like if I want to, because I like to light it on Shabbat. Yeah. Because I'll check to make sure it's clean and there's no oil on the outside. And then what I'll do is I'll fill it with, we, we actually found pure olive oil that's actually kosher. Nice. Mazalto. So I fill it up and then I put these wicks in that I found at the bookstore where I've been getting all my separim. And I proceed to light. But what I do before I light is I read those verses out of Parashah Emor. Because <clears throat> I read it both in Hebrew and English, you know. But um, yeah. I noticed that when I keep it clean, the light burns brighter. And I trim the wicks. If I trim the wicks just right, that flame is going to be at just the right height. <clears throat> so now I'm getting into Tanya. Yeah. Hasidic, uh, Hasidic thought. Yeah. Don't want the flame to burn too brightly. Otherwise, it would consume the wick. Meaning mm. you don't want to do too many mitzvot too quickly mm. you'll burn the wick you'll burn yourself out wow. Come on. <clears throat> and if you look closely at the flame it looks like it doesn't even touch the wick 
because you got this like film of oil that covers the wick. And that oil is the mitzvah. And every so often you have to refill the menorah. See, this is why Aaron's commanded tend to it at night and light it. And once again in the morning, but notice it's Arvit and Shakarit. <clears throat> and notice that, you know, just as a reminder, the Hebrew day begins at sunset. That's right. It's a brand new day. Yeah, so this is how you start your day was with RV. And then you have Sakari, then you have Dominka, and then RV. And guess what? Those three letters, the first three letters of each word spell the word Shema. So, yeah, I mean, that's just amazing. <clears throat> Yeah, so the Al-Qa'in continues, the author of this teaching clearly maintains that the lamps were not affixed to the menorah, but could be removed for cleaning. Now, even according to the Tana cited in the Gemara, there are two disputes that, of that view, who disputes that view, and maintains that the lamps were affixed to the menorah. He also maintains that they were not completely immovable for the stems upon which the lamps were fixed were thin and flexible. And when the Kohen would prepare the lamps, he would bend them downward until they were low enough that he could cl uh, clear them out and wipe them down. And he would then set them up as before, as is evident from the words of Rashi there. It emerges from the Gemara that there are two opinions about the lamps of the menorah, one opinion is that the lamps were completely removable. The other opinion is that they were affixed to the menorah, although they were flexible enough to be lowered for cleaning. Orkayim takes his own position in this dispute. Now I say that if I had been there when the Talmudic sages held this debate, I would have presented evidence from the verses and made the case before them that the lamps were not fixed, but rather completely removable. Orkayi presents three passages from the Tanakh that demonstrate this position. The first proof is from what uh, from that which we find that when the Torah recounts the construction of the Mishkan and all its parts and mentions all the details regarding the construction of the menorah, Shemot 37, 17 through 24. It does not mention this detail that the menorah was made with lamps in the position described in our verse toward the face of the menorah shall the seven lamps cast light. And a note for that is our verse commands that when the menorah is lit, all of the wicks must face the middle lamp the face of the, of the menorah, El Panay Ha Menorah. Uh, in order to do this, the lamps must be positioned with their spouts facing the middle lamp of the menorah. This brings up something interesting I discovered a, a, a few years ago. Um, you're familiar with uh, equidistant letter spacing, otherwise known as Torah code? Yes, sir. 
in the book of Genesis, beginning with the first Tav and counting 49 letters, every 49th letter spells the word Torah. This is also the same in um, Exodus, but in Vayikra, you don't find it. But when you get move over to Bamidbar and Devarim, the word is there as well, but spelled backwards. I remember this. Yeah, I, I told you. I think I told you about this before. Yeah. And then when you get to uh, Vayikra, every eighth letter is wait Bamidbar or Devarim. And and Bamidbar and Devarim. It's backwards. Yeah, it's backwards. They're pointing so, yes, towards. They're all facing in. They're pointing towards the center branch. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And the center branch, Vayikra. Vayikra. Every eighth letter is Yeshua. Wow. What's the Torah pointing to? What is the Torah pointing to? <laughs> there, there's, that's just another shadow, man. A big one. <laughs> uh, side note, speaking of big shadows, how about our brother Yosef, who dropped an amazing video this week on the menorah. So, shameless plug, not so shameless. <laughs> Yosef Hot and Met on YouTube. Check him out. Uh, he has Beha Alotka. Uh, he has two videos for this week. So uh, equally great videos and uh, subscribe. Hit the like button. Click the little bell. <laughs> Stay informed. And okay. Subscribe, and subscribe while you're at it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Leave a comment. <laughs> Actually, you can't leave a comment. It's probably a good thing because. Oh, okay. Never mind. Yeah. Don't listen to me. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Let's see. Now, if the lamps were affixed to the menorah and not movable, the place to mention the fact that the lamps must face the middle is when the Torah recounts the original construction of the menorah. The Torah should have stated there that they affixed the lamps in the required position. That fact seemingly does not belong in our verse where the Torah discusses the daily service of the menorah. Clearly then the lamps were removable and therefore the command to point them toward the face of the menorah applied daily every time the Kohen replaced them on top of the menorah. So you got to ask yourself, why is Aharon distressed when you have the distinct honor of lighting the menorah in the holy place? That's why it says the bear mm-hmm. and Amar. Because, yeah, it's, yeah. because it's the same thing like with the Sota. That correction, the light to reveal the flaw. You know, like not to like reveal the flaw in the sense of like, here, let me show you where you messed up. But like, in other words, 
what Hashem told on her own. Like, actually, your job is way more important. Like, I know you're concerned over here, but I need you to be concerned right here kind of thing. You know, and it's it's so amazing how these two ruminations have gone together and you can use the Sota and Aharon. <laughs> you know, like the woman who went astray versus Aharon whose thoughts were astray. Like your thoughts, Aharon, are not over there. Like if you want to think about being a part of the 12 princely offerings, you're going to miss out on what you're actually like you're over here you're the Cohen Gadol you know and it's crazy because it's the same thing with the tree of knowledge and good and evil like we were so focused over here that the whole time the tree of life was available we should have ate that but Satan was like no don't worry about that you don't want none of that you don't, you don't want eternal life. <laughs> Get that out of here. You, you know, just to further bolster your point is that only beginning with Aharon as to Kohen Gadol, only he could go in and perform the Yom Kippur service in the Kedosh Kedoshim. Oh, right. Oh. And that being once a year. And even though it's once a year, it's not a one-time thing. <laughs> right? So how many times he goes in there that day? <laughs> and what does he take in there with him? He has to take a shovel full of Kedaret. And that thing is smoking. When he walks in there, it the whole the it's not a very large space, right? <laughs> yeah. It, it fills up quickly. Why? Because nobody has seen him at any time. Wow. You are before the Kisei Kavod, the mercy seat. And and he's like, you know, he dips his blood from the 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 bowl of the sin offering. Yeah. Right? Okay. And he splashes that blood seven times on each side, Sabiv, all the way around. And then on the caporet, uh, the cover. Yeah. Right there on the mercy seat. That's what Yeshua did for us. Ooh, the Yom Kippur. See, if you don't study this stuff, you're not going to understand the work of the master. You, you just simply won't. Because he goes into the place that was the pattern that was shown to Moshe. Oh, this is the this is the imagery that the writer of Hebrews brings to us. So we have a frame of reference so that we can understand. Because this is so deeply mystical. I mean, yeah, and Isaiah six. Yeah, there you go. Literally, the Yom Kippur service is the manifestation of Isaiah 6. <laughs> you know, but, you know, in, in the Christian theological system, what are we beat over the head with? Oh, you're a sinner. You're going to hell if you don't accept Jesus as your personal savior. 
And, you know, I would say, are you, let me ask you this. Are you going to say that to those men and women and that are listed in Hebrews 11? Ooh. Yeah, try that with King David. Yeah, see what he says. <laughs> Man. Or try to say that to Shlomo when he in Koholet 12 13. <laughs> Let us sum up the matter. Fear Hashem and keep his mitzvot. For this is the whole duty of man. Uh, I keep thinking of this famous, uh, this is such a slang vernacular, but it's like, you don't want no problems, problems. Because, <laughs> like, if you just walk up to them, did you know what you're doing could cause you to go to hell? Like, it's just like, bruh, you don't want to be saying that to me right now, you know? No. <laughs> <laughs> that ain't going to work out. You know, I... Yeah, I mean, okay, so the second proof that the Orkayim brings, another proof is from what the Torah says in Parashah Bamidbar, where it describes the process of transporting the menorah above in 4, verse 9. They shall take a cloth of turquoise wool and cover the menorah of illumination. That's the same thing they do with the Ark. and its lamps, and its tongs, and its spoons, and all the vessels of, the, of its oil. It's all covered. Yeah. This separate mention of the lamps together with the tongs, etc., points clearly to the fact that the lamps were not fixed, because otherwise the lamps would be included in the menorah itself, and the verse would not have needed to list them separately together with the menorah's other utensils clearly then that the lamps were not affixed to the menorah and for that reason it was necessary to list them separately to clarify that they too were covered by the turquoise cloth just like the menorah's tongs and its spoons which were separate from the menorah itself a final proof Later, I saw a similar proof in uh, Devray Hayamim uh, Beit. Uh, 4.19.20, Shlomo made all the articles for the temple of God, the menorahs and their lamps of fine gold. This separate mention of the lamps also demonstrates that when the menorahs are mentioned in the verse, their lamps are not included. I also saw that Rashi of Blessed Memory wrote there similarly, and this is a quote, the language of this verse serves to disprove the opinion of those who explain that the lamps were made as part of the menorah's body and were attached to it. For it is written here, the menorahs and their lamps, etc. The quote ends here. See there for the rest of, the, of his words at length. You thus learn that the plain sense of the verses, 
both in the Torah and in Divrei Hayamim, indicates that the lamps were not affixed to the menorah. And on the point about Aharon being discouraged, the Ramban agrees with the Orkaim about that. Wow. So the menorahs fashioned out of a single piece of gold that was thrown into the fire, but yet you can unscrew the lamps to take them off to clean them. Mm -hmm. So it's one piece, but it can come apart. Yeah. To be cleansed. <laughs> now, to get mystical more, um, the all of the, the lamps themselves were in the shape of a an almond. Eyes. Ayin. Now let's get back to the Yom Kippur service for a moment here. Aharon's in the Kedosh Kedoshim. He's atoning for the ark. Right? The Mizbeach Kedoret is still burning. The smoke is still rising. It's filling the Ohel Moed. So Aharon finishes his task in the most holy place, he comes out and he can't see a thing. It's black smoke coming off of the Mizbeach Kedaret. What is the only thing that he can see? These eyes. Yep. <laughs> Seven of them. Yeah, revelation, but there's also another pasuk that states, and the eyes of Hashem go to and fro throughout the earth, trying the hearts of men to see if there are any who inquire of him or walk in his way. So he's going to be looking at his own reflection because you just talked about the heart, searching the hearts that are for him. And we talked about looking in the mirror, seeing the reflection, the way the menorah was given. It was given as a vision, a mirror reflection. And if I remember correctly, the menorah sits to the south. Yep. In the faces, faces north. And you have the eastern lamps and you have the western lamps. Yep. So, um, yeah, and I also have the Ari bookmarks, which I can grab. Um, um, apples from the orchard, because I think this is amazing. Um, I feel like I got to bar. No, I. Okay, two things. I got to borrow this book for one Torah portion, <laughs> and I feel like it was right after Naso, right into Behalotka. So, like, I feel like this portion I got to read the orchards. <laughs> <laughs> so it's crazy that you're like, you're like, oh, here's here's orchards right now. <laughs> 
I'm like, I got to read it for this week. I remember that. Okay, so the RE repeats the very same verse that the Archaim does and that the Rambam does. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to move down to this part here. The menorah is the physical manifestation of the part Suf Raquel. The Nukva of Zeranpin, which are postured back to back. As we have explained previously, Nukva of Zeranpin appears as two part Sufim, Leah and Raquel. Just as Jacob, the personification of Zeranpin, had two wives with these names. And just as the main wife of Jacob was Raquel, the main iteration of the partsuf of Nukva is that of Raquel. When the partsuf of Raquel is initially emanated or built, it is positioned back to back with Zeranpin. This corresponds to the Minrashic account of the creation of Adam and Hava in which they were created as a sort of Siamese twin joined back to back and had to be sawed apart in order to turn later turn toward each other and mate. Similarly, the part two for Raquel once emanated must be further developed in order to mate with Zeranpin. This is the process of kindling the lamps of the menorah as will be explained now. Its seven lamps are the physical manifestation of the seven lower sephirot of the partsuf of Raquel. In other words, the two lower triads of the sephirot, which also includes Malkut. Okay. From its Hased to its Malkut. These together are called its body. In other words, it's the body of Zerampin. Right. And they are depicted like the three branches of the menorah, left, right, and center. In other words, the center branch of the menorah, you have Tiferet, you have Yesod, you have Malkut. Then you have the branches to the right and to the left. You have Hesed, Netzach, you have Gevura, and Hod. The menorah, of course, had seven branches, but what is meant here is the general subdivision of the three branches to the right, three to the left, and the center shaft. As is known, the five states of Gavura and Nukva Da'at spread throughout its seven lower sephirot, similar to the way the five states of Hased spread throughout the body of Zeranpin. Whereas Nukva is constructed mainly out of different states of Gavura, as we have explained, Zerampin is constructed out of different states of Hased. In Zerampin, the five states of Hased within its Da'at spread forth from Hased to Hod, and the aggregate of their shining forth pools into Yesod. And then the aggregate that shines in Yesod, Yesod pools into its Malkut. This is the mystical meaning of 
the seal within the seal. As we have explained in reference to Hosha'ana uh, Rabbah. The seal within a seal is a halakhic concept, wine, etc., which has been touched by idolaters, is considered defiled unless it is sealed with a double seal. The mystical correlate of this concept is the seal given by God on the promise of his beneficence given at the beginning of each year. This seal is seen as God's assurance that he will bestow his beneficence on the Jewish people and via them to all worthy recipients among the other nations and creatures of the world and not to the forces of evil, i.e. the wine will not be contaminated by association with false gods and ideologies. So remember the beginning of the rumination? What identifies a disciple? Is it creed, bumper sticker, or membership? Right. You could substitute the word uh, creed with ideology. Ooh. Or add it to it. I think he just intended this to be just a partial list. You could go on. Right. Just like the 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 denominations, they have gone on and on and on. Yeah, all because one person says, "I don't like that." See, that's very subjective. You're you're doing it based on how you feel. Your own egoism. You know, there, where is the self-nullification? How can the master be seen in you if you are behaving in this manner? I certainly wouldn't be able to see him. Right. <clears throat> see, the first seal occurs during the, the Ne'ilah closing prayer of Yom Kippur when the judgment which began on Rosh Hashanah is signed and sealed. But this judgment is subject to further certification by the holiday of Sukkot, which is also a time of judgment, albeit in a more positive vein. Thus, on each day of this holiday, special prayers are recited called Hosanna Anot, prayers for salvation. The last day of Sukkot is the final closing day of this second judgment period and is called uh, Hosanna Rabbah, the great Hosanna, after the extra long Hosanna, Hosanna <coughs> note recited on it. In the terminology of Kabbalah, the divine uh, Fujits, which flows through the Midot, becomes solidified and ready to be transmitted to the world when it reaches the Sephira of Yesod, the Sephira of drive for transmission. But it is only fully assured of uncontaminated transmission when it reaches the Sephira of Malkut, that of full expression. 
Yeah, I think of Yeshua when he says, um, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In other words, bringing the manifestation of Yesod to Malkut. All of our drives. Yeah. Your desire to bring forth. Because that ultimately emanates from Yesod. This is why the Torah is, ref is referred to as uh, coming from Yesod. The foundation. Because that's what that word also means. Because now we get into the parable about the, the two foundations. Yep. The sand and the rock. Yep. Um, yeah, and I think there was what uh, one other I'm thinking of, but I can't quite put my finger on it. But um, you know, if uh, if your eye be single, then your whole body will be full of light. You know, the light of the body is the eye. The lamp of the body. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, the lamp. Okay, narrow. Okay, near. Um. Yeah, so we want our eye to be single. Yeah. So that our whole body will be filled with light. And obviously, we want to bring the expression of Yesod into Malkut as fully as menorah. Yeah, as fully as possible. See, this is, this is the aspect of lighting the menorah, but we internalize it. We're lighting the menorah inside of us. Right. And we have to maintain its bowls, its wicks, keep the oil uncontaminated, and so forth. Keep the wicks trimmed properly. <laughs> because all this is to improve our, our midot. Um, okay. See, the five states of a said that spread through Zerampin are alluded to by the five-time word light is mentioned in the account of the first day of creation are called lights of day. The five states of Gavura that spread through Nukva and shine in it are called the lights of night. These shine via the lamps of the menorah. Thus the seven lamps, which are the vessels that hold the burning oil and wicks manifest the seven lower sephirot of Nufa, while the seven lights which burn in them, shining from the fire and flame of the burning wicks inside the lamps, are the lights that shine via the vessels. So you have to maintain your vessel. That's right. See, every sephira is composed of a light and a vessel. In most contexts, the light is simply the divine energy or creative force, which is a uniform, simple entity that does not change from one sephira to the other. What gives the sephira its unique identity is its vessel, which is the context in which the light shines. 
a standard analogy for this is clear water that is poured into different colored glasses. Although water is colorless, it will appear to assume the color of the glass it is poured into. Similarly, God is a simple, unified essence, but he acts through the various attributes of the Sephiroth, which may be dramatically opposed to one another. Example, Hesed and, and Gevura. The dichotomy of light and vessel allows the one God to assume a multitude of attributes without com compromising his unity. We said in most contexts, since a more detailed analysis of this issue leads to the conclusion that the lights also have some, have some a priori identity even before they enter their respective vessels but this discussion and its uh, ramifications are beyond the scope of the present exposition so yeah you know kind of getting back to the tetragrammaton it's like a vessel he pours himself into it but it's showing an attribute and ultimately, this is what the Sephira are. This is also the 72 names. So, you know, it's like the color, it's like the, the color of this glass. The water's taking out its color. It's kind of like a gray color. So I, I pour the water into it so it looks gray. But does that change the nature of the water? The water is still water. It's just the glasses making it look different, but I know it's still water. I know I can still drink it. So it is with Hashem when he shines forth through the various Sephira. Like for example, Hokma, wisdom. That's how I'm gonna see that he's wise beyond all understanding. And you can apply this analogy to the other Sephira of emanation. So if you notice that on the menorah when the, the flame is actually burning or even lighting a candle, you have different frequencies of light. When the flame is closest to the wick, it takes on like a bluish color. And as you begin to move away from the wick, it starts taking on more of a white color. That's when it's hottest. And then it drops to yellow and it's cooler. If I, I've studied astronomy, uh, the, uh, the discipline known as stellar astronomy, which is the study of stars. You have different stars that are different colors. What's it's the frequency of light that they shine in. And a unit of measurement for that is called angstrom. You could apply the principle of water with light as well. When you shine it through a prism, you get the colors of the rainbow. But does that change the nature of the light that's passing through the prism? See, same thing with the Sephirot. If you look at the Sephira as a prism, it's reflecting. It's, it's expanding or 
elucidating, giving you more information about Hashem and what he's like. So when we want to be identified with Mashiach, we need to learn about all these attributes and acquire them for ourselves because this is the image that we are created in. Because he is all the tense of Pharaoh united. Because when he explains here the unity, so it is with us. It behooves us to do the very same thing. This is just another way that Mashiach can be seen in us. It's another way that they know that we love him and we love our fellow man. Nice. The Sephira of Hased, of loving kindness. So you see this throughout the Gospels when he speaks, depends on the way Yeshua is speaking. He can speak on the side of Abba, you know, Hokmah, Hased, Netzach. But then when he's getting more stern, he's moving over to the side of Ima. So now you see um, Bina understanding. Like say in Matthew 15, when he's saying, don't you yet have understanding in regards to, you know, Yeah. And then uh, Gavura. So he was being harsh with them, but it's mixed with has said. Right. So now, so now you have Tiferet. You have the two sides of Tiferet. You have this Tiferet of Ima, you have the Tiferet of Abba. But the two the Tifira of Hesed and Gavura are interacting with one another. They're cross-channeling. This is why you see all the connections in the Sephiro. They're all interconnected. They all interact with one another because why? There's unity there. And that's the love we're supposed to have for one another. Yeah. Yeah, it really just sounds a lot like the way uh, quantum physics talks you know how there's the waves and then it changes form you know and things like that and it can be like there and not you know and then it's over here so i mean it's light and water they do the same thing and so do our medote you know our character traits and and we did we just spent seven weeks in Sephirah's Haomer. We were literally lighting our menorah. So yeah, are you familiar with the Doppler effect? Uh no. Of sound. Oh, you ever notice, like say you're waiting at a rail crossing, right? And a train's approaching. Have you noticed how the pitch of the horn is higher? But then when the train passes you by, the pitch drops. Ah. The reason for that is as it's approaching you, the sound waves are being compressed. 
and thus the pitch increases, the frequency in increases. This same principle is applicable to light as well. You see stars that are blue shifted, that's compressed wavelengths of light that's approaching the earth. Based, okay. on, your, based on the location of your uh, observation, your observatory, where your telescope's located. But then you see red shifted stars, that light's moving away from you. So you basically have this like ebb and flow, this Razzo Veshov yeah. is what it's called. That's technically how we're supposed to uh, live. You know, this is why we go into Shabbat, then we come out of Shabbat. We go into Shabbat, then we come out of Shabbat. It's a Doppler effect, basically. Because, like, the, the anticipation, like, it builds as we get closer to Shabbat. We're like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> you know, and then we get there, and then it was like, well, which, you know, the menorah, the center branch, uh, that's the Shabbat. And then you have the preceding days to the left and the following days to the right, you know. Oh, that's the Arizal and my Sidur, man. Yeah, that's it. Yep. So that's what you were explaining. Yeah, exactly. See, that's science and Kabbalah. I, to me, they're one and the same. Yep. They really are. Like when you when you really look at quantum physics, it truly is Kabbalah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's at least they borrow principles from Kabbalah, we should say, because <laughs> obviously, <laughs> perhaps Kabbalah is way beyond. Oh, yeah, I mean, but yeah, I mean, um, it really does go on. I mean, a little more specific, um. Yeah, see, as we have explained elsewhere, the states of Hased that spread throughout Zeranpin are divided into two categories. As far down as its chest, they are covered within the sheath of the Yesod of Ima, which reaches this far. From its chest downward, however, they are exposed to lights. Thus, the exposed lights are the lower two-thirds of Teferet, of Zeranpin, this is what is meant by from the chest downward, plus the twofold lights of Netzach and Hod of Zeranpin. They are thus two and two thirds exposed light. The five states of a set of Zeranpin originate in Ima, the part two of Bina. As will be explained further on, they are transmitted from Ima to Zeranpin via the Yesod of Ima. In psychological terms, this simply means that the love or enthusiasm that expresses itself throughout the entire emotional array originates in the intellect, specifically in Bina, where the insight of Hokmah is developed into a full conceptual structure that can elicit an emotional response but since intellect itself is self 
self-referencing and self-oriented, it is only the yesod of Bina, the drive of the intellect to actualize itself, which is interested in changing reality by eliciting an emotional response. You know, like Aaron's response to the inauguration ceremony. But you yep. get to light the menorah. Yeah, come to me, all of you who are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Yeah. You know, take comfort in that. He he consult Hashem consoled them with that I swear by your life that you that your portion is greater. Wow. And as I've been reading here, that portion is a lot larger than I think any of us anticipate. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's amazing. Um, okay. See, the disciples of Messiah are, let's see. Okay, you can never separate love from the commandments of the Almighty. Love and the revelation of God's righteousness, the Torah, are inseparable. Love of God and love of each other are defined in the Torah. Cast it aside and you will only think you love God and your brother. See, that's where it becomes subjective. By this, we know that we are the children of God when we love God. And keep his commandments. For this is the love of God. That we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. First John 5, 2 and 3. The disciples of Messiah are marked by our love for one another. Our love for one another is defined by the Torah. Without the Torah, love has no biblical definition. We are a part of an eternal lamp. We ourselves are wicks that fuel the flame, revealing the Shekinah to the world around us. What is the oil that keeps our wick lit? What is our love? It is Torah deeds, beloved. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Matthew 5, 16. And what's interesting is this verse immediately precedes 5, 17, for I have not come to abolish the Torah. Because it's inseparable. Yep. <laughs> I've come not to abolish, but to fulfill or that you may be filled. I am come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Yeah. All right. Well, a double rumination. Quite a bit of content. Uh, I would say that uh, <laughs> very thorough. <laughs> so Amen. Um, so we are not part of a man-made system, 
but rather we are a part of Hashem's congregation. Amen. Well, I will recite our closing bracha. It's been excellent to catch back up and uh, be back on with the weekly parsha. So, so to everyone joining us this week. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Natan Lanu Torat Emet Vechaye Olam Nata Betokainu Baruch Ata Adonai Notain HaTorah Amen <laughs>